This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, movie lovers. Today we dissect Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. That's right. Let's talk about it. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now. Here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We have the one and only Dimitri Panos. Hey, movie fans. How are you? And Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. If you're returning, welcome back. A couple of things if you're a newcomer. One, we assume that you've seen the movie, so therefore it is spoiler-filled. You've been warned. Two, you can kind of get our rundown in the description box just click the link and you can sort of follow along right right there we go <laughs> bloody well right <laughs> and as we always do let's start with overall impressions marissa uh i, I will just pre- quite color coordinated yes. might i add i will just preface that i have worn the shirt so many times on this particular show but i feel this one the shirt was tailor-made for this movie so, yes, I'm very colorful. For those in audio colors. land, literally imagine the poster background. That's On my Mercer's shirt. <laughs> yes. That was planned. I loved this film. Um, I'm a big fan of Guillermo del Toro. And we've talked about his few others. Our very first one was Pacific Rim. Pacific so, Rim was uh, it, if you are a fan of Anatomy, you know how much we love Guillermo del Toro's work. And this was just another one. In the first five minutes of this film, I was already, you know, in captivated. And with the camera movements, I was like, all right, it's that kind of film. I'm already sucked in. And just watching it, the visuals, the acting, the story, I loved it all. There were some moments it got weird, and I had to suspend my disbelief. But it's Guillermo del Toro. He has, he does a great job of building worlds and monsters. You have to, like, separate yourself from reality to to the non, or to the, to the fiction aspect of it. But if you get over the, the weird moments... This is a beautiful film, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it's Guillermo del Toro's love of monsters is, again, yet again, exquisitely uh, uh, on display in The Shape of Water. It plays like a fairy tale sequel to The Creature from the Black Lagoon that we never knew we wanted, but I feel that we're all very lucky to have. Um, And in in Guillermo del Toro's world, uh, he... He romanticizes monsters where, yes, the monsters can be scary, but it's more man is the real monster in a lot of his, in a lot, if not all of his movies. And right here in display um, for The Shape of Water, it was just beautifully shot, beautifully done. Um, And yet, like I said, he, he will place the creature or the Gilman, or whatever he's called, uh, specifically. The asset. The asset. Lovingly, he just adores those, these creatures, these monsters, and he gives them this wonderful, um, uh, like, he romanticizes them, but yet they can still be scary, because monsters are scary. And whether it's a ghost, or whether it's from somebody from, from, from the devil's backbone, 
or or Pan's Labyrinth, or or his uh, his last movie. Uh, we, we, you and I talked about it. Crimson uh, Peak. Crimson Peak yeah. again, where the ghosts—they're very lavish, lush. Uh, they play good to the people who take care of them, but thematically is what his movies are all about. And he loves, much like Tim Burton, when you think about it, he loves the awkwardness. Um, you know, I mean, as a child, when he's growing up, he felt he was the awkward one of all these people, and he loves focusing on that, and that's what these creatures give, and he, and he breathes life into them, unlike we've seen sort of kind of before. Um, maybe, like I said, in a Tim Burton film who has the same thing for the bizarre, but Del Toro's view and the way he films it, it's just beautiful. And the relationship that he builds, this creature is not a creature of, of horror, except when he's put into a corner. And it's man and the time period. The time period, I think, in this movie is extremely important because there's so much going on uh, in the 60s with racial tension, uh, uh, ideolo- uh, you know, ideologies are, 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 are being feared of people. And this movie uh, set in that time period is a perfect uh, example of how, that, how it all works out. And it's all beautifully shot. You have great performances and you have your good, your bad, and your ugly. It's just a wonderful story. Fair enough. I, I thought overall a really good movie. I enjoyed it overall. However, I did have sort of problems with the love story. I think they pushed it a little bit too far, and I get that was his intent, and we'll talk about that. Uh, it's just uh, sometimes what I love about it is when he's able to create magical realism, and, and but in a subtle, realistic way. I thought he took a little bit too far in a way that he didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, you know, it wasn't... Like, I, I appreciate the ending, but I think I think we could have cut down on a couple of portions earlier, and we would have been fine. That's my take on it overall. Uh, one of the things I definitely want to talk to you guys about, and I don't know if you guys want to start with this, it's up to you guys, was Michael Shannon's character redeemed by the end? Oh. No. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> Hell no. It, it, but it, it's, but, but, it's but self-wise, the reason I ask is because, you know, he says to him, you are a god. And now, obviously, you know, granted, if, if the Gill Man is, quote, a god and he slashes him, and that, that's very poetic because he's taken away his voice, I, it, the fact that Michael, like, he realizes, shit, I was wrong this whole time. Right, but I think this is a a prime example of a little too late. Um, I mean, it's something to have, finally, that character realization, but that never changed his ways. He didn't have enough time to change his ways and, like, try to redeem himself, quote-unquote, by, like, helping the monster because the monster literally kills him. And I even shouldn't say monster because, like, the way that they portrayed it, it's not really a monster. It's someone that you're supposed to really enjoy this character. Um, but there was no, like, having a moment of realization for the character doesn't make him a good person. Like, I could realize someone's, someone's really, like, oh, this is what you really are, but that doesn't change his ways, you know? I, the reason I asked was because, to me, that's part of what made this story really strong was that notion, Mm -hmm. like, towards the end... I didn't. I didn't agree with his character, but the fact that he 
he just literally wanted to be a decent man and he was trying to figure out what decency actually meant right. yet he was one of the most indecent human beings alive in, in, in how he went about it that to me became far more interesting especially by the end than unfortunately the love story you know I think I think the love story propelled to that moment and you're right he didn't ultimately redeem himself but just to me by the, the, that sheer fact that he recognized I was wrong I thought it was it was a perfect bow tie or a tie to this uh you know little present of a movie but he was so wrong oh i know i get that i'm not i'm not discrediting he he was horrendous i get it (laughs) but not just to the creature and and i'll call him a monster because he is a monster it's just the way in which a monster... It's a great perception. That's what I love about Del Toro. He'll give a different per- perception. And the monster can still be scary and supposed to scare, much like he does to Strickland at the end. And throughout the entire movie, I mean, Strickland himself deems himself a god of that... that that um, The laboratory, per se. He snatched this creature from, from the Amazon and brings him in. And he even says... We haven't exactly, uh, we don't exactly get along, or we haven't quite seen eye to eye the entire trip over here. And he shocks him, and but his mistreatment of, of of the creature goes well beyond that to people around him, the people that he's worked with, the other scientists, and his wife. <laughs> so, I mean, when you talk about uncomfortable, I don't know what's more uncomfortable: the sex scene with his wife. Or the sex scenes that that you were talking about, they're they're they're, they're a different, but they're a different uh, quality. Yes, up to if we're going to talk about the sex scenes, I think it's very ironic with the sex scenes if you think about it. When you have Michael Shannon's character Strickland, 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 and his wife, the way that they were having sex was very animalistic, and then the way the the creature and Eliza were having was very heartwarming and and soothing and very more emotional. So, like, the, that sex scene was more humanistic compared to the actual humans being more animalistic. Yeah, I, I felt he was animalistic. He was mm-hmm. wanting his wife to shut up, like, covering her mouth, be quiet, and that's why... Sally Hawkins character would have been perfect for him, and that's why he sort of makes not sort of he makes a pass uh, at her. But as far as your redemption, it's too soon, too late. He doesn't try to save the creature uh, and losing his voice and and no, albeit his too- life. <laughs> um, I don't yeah. think he dies though. I think he. Oh, I think he dies. Right. He's dead. I, I mean, he just slashes his. One fell swoop. Strickland? Strickland's totally dead. Yeah, I think he's dead. Uh, I think. You saw him bleed out while everyone was standing by him. I thought he was going to die earlier, but he didn't die then either. So to me, it's it's to have him go for the rest of life without an actual voice, that's his punishment. That's, to me, that's that's cyclical poetry. Sure, but... It would be, but... Uh, as for a film and story, just an arc for his character, I don't think the audience would like that character to still live. So, but I want to... Well, <laughs> Fair enough. But something that gives food to your argument or, uh, is, is what Del Toro says of Michael Shannon himself and the character of Strickland. First, he calls him an incredible precision of classical English actor 
and at the same time the impulsiveness and immediacy of an American actor. Uh, he's capable of giving humanity to the most heinous of villains. He goes, I didn't want Strickland to, to be just the bad guy. I wanted him to be a guy you almost feel for because he himself is a victim of the system in his time. And he is a victim of the system uh, as, as uh, the admiral. He was an admiral. Yeah, class Colonel system. Uh, so, you know, I wanted you... He goes, I wanted him to go through things you wouldn't normally see a villain go through. Self-doubt, reflection, despair. And he says, Michael Shannon brings all of these moments into the movie. So he does go through despair, but it's not necessarily towards the creature. It's towards, I can't do my job. (laughs) You know, this is my goal. I I have to get rid of the asset. I have to... Well, even the, the, the fact that he had a book on positive thinking, and, and he says to the, <laughs> yeah. he says to Hoyt, "I'm keeping a positive attitude about this." Mm. I, you know, it is different. It, it, that was right. also conflicting with his character because when you realize when General Hoyt k- keeps coming into the scene, you realize that Strickland's just the middleman who's frustrated. He so when Hoyt is in there, he tries to be the upper hand, authoritative management. But then you always, at the end of the day, realize, I was like, oh, he still has a boss, too. So he, I think he had a lot of internal struggles with that superiority complex that he has. Sure, and Shannon played to that. Yeah. Um, he, he even says, I think Strickland wants to be strong and vulnerable and devoid of mistakes. Hence, reading the book about perfection um, and positive thinking. Um, you know, it, it, with that American gung-ho drive, but he's also, he's broken down by the same system that he's trying to serve. So he, to your, to all our points, I think he is not your archetypical villain is bad guy. He's a, he's a villain that does have layers, but ultimately, still irredeemable and dead. And dead. <laughs> and dead. Definitely dead. <laughs> but, know. You know, it, I like it, to think he's not dead. That's I'm just put that <laughs> out there. Positive thinking. <laughs> no, to this. me it's not because it's, it, it, now he has to. As I said, he has to suffer through the rest of his life being like. Um, her. And that's irony. Yeah. Mute. Exactly. His voice was taken away. That's his retribution. Um, Wonderfully played by by, by Michael Shannon. I mean, he's a great actor. Yes. Personally, you know, uh, uh, nocturnal... Nocturnal animals. Animals. He was fantastic. But I like him as a good guy, too. He was in Midnight Special. I mean, he can play it and pull it off. uh, But in this movie, I think it's one of his better performances. One of his best performances. Yeah, I think he just, no offense to him, he just has this face that looks creepy and evil. Yes. Yeah. And just down to the way he chewed the candy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was talking to Anthony, one of our other engineers and staff members here, uh, that that Michael Shannon is so good at playing the bad guy. He like Not to play to the, the type personalities for, for him as an actor, because he, every once in a while, does good guys, but he does bad guys so well. Right. You know? And, and to your point, it's, do, you think, do you think he gets typecast? I mean, he, he, he certainly picks interesting roles. So to be completely typecast means he's going to take, he's going to be in that shitty movie and play the bad cop or the bad guy. But the movies in which he's a villain are better than that. Yeah. The, I think, the, the, I mean, not, you know. People recognize that he's a phenomenal actor. I mean, not yet. I, for me, he first came onto the scene with Boardwalk Empire and HBO. And for me, it was Bug. 
that uh, that movie. Ashley <laughs> Judd. Yeah. Uh, uh, but and he's sort of. So I think that to me highlighted how how great he can play and just kind of took off from there. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's shift to the other side, if you will, I guess. Uh, let, let, let's talk about our protagonist. Um, you know, interesting for me, what, what, the more interesting part was we don't get um, Octavia Spencer's kind of explanation of who that character is until later, which is surprising because uh, normally in uh, most Hollywood movies you would kind of have that scene be up front mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. explain like, oh, she, she can hear, but she's mute, so she can't talk. Um, and all that stuff, but, but I thought they presented that quite well, and uh, obviously it carries the, the the themes of that carry throughout. Yeah, and I th- I mean if we're talking about our main protagonist Eliza, what Sally Hawkins' performance was phenomenal, and I did like that friendship dynamic with Eliza and Zelda because Zelda ultimately did become the voice of Eliza when it came to work or personal life and stuff, and it, it was from a friend that actually understood her and what she went through um, and someone who's compassionate all at the same time. And I think it was good because we saw Eliza during her moments when she was, you know, sign language and she had her own personality and her own voice. But then when it came to other people who didn't understand Eliza during those moments, that's when Zelda came in and became the, a, a stronger voice than Eliza could ever be. And I really like that. And how, especially in the 1960s, there's still a lot of oppression for women back then. So to have two women have very strong voices in a time when women were oppressed, it's a gorgeous, beautiful thing. And one was African American, too. Back so doubly then. oppressed. Exactly. So doubly. Um, you don't expect it at that time. What I most appreciated about Eliza's character is we get bits and pieces of her story, but there's still much to fill in the blank that we don't exactly know how she got, how she lost her voice, so to speak. There's a scene with Michael, with, with Strickland, where he says, he, he even says, he goes, oh, did that, that, yes, that happened when you were a baby. He goes, oh, such monsters. Okay. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly. And even through Zelda's, uh, explanation. We only get parts of what her background is and why she's the way she is. But she's a beautifully, wonderfully drawn out, written character who, you know, let's face it, the, the opening scenes with her um, waking up in the morning and, and how... Her daily routine. Her daily, her daily routine. Um it is, you, you understand this character and her friendship not only with, with Richard Jenkins' character mm-hmm. as well. Giles. And Giles and Zelda, they know sign, they understand, they, they can communicate with one another. And it really is a, a wonderful triangle of friends right there uh, that, will, that ultimately end up supporting one another. So I really appreciate... I didn't need to know every specific detail of her background because it was all played out for me. I understand she has this affliction, uh, but I also understand she has a good support network behind her, and she will support her friends too, and you, and you get that. She's just a wonderfully written character, and as you said, just perfectly portrayed, beautifully portrayed by Sally Hawkins. Yeah. It's a tough, you know, it's a tough role. It, it certainly was, and what I appreciated... They use, like with dialogue, you want to minimize your dialogue just 
to maximize the effectiveness of it. And as far as the sign language goes, you know, we, I could have definitely seen it be overused. And it was interesting how they did use it, and also further interesting how they chose to which words they would actually put up and which Caption. ones they didn't. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. some of them, without even knowing, without having to know what was said, just by whether reactions or what was said after that, uh, you, you kind of were able to fill in the blank, and I thought that was quite masterful. Yeah. I think it was uh, great showing it in different ways throughout the film because, I mean, we got scenes where she's just purely signing with subtitles. We got other scenes where she's signing someone else's interpret- interpreting. And then we got scenes that's just pure sign language without any words. Mm-hmm. So, like, we had different forms of her language. And I, I think it was, like, so strategically placed throughout that we got to a rhythm where people just understood what she was talking about and what she was feeling or, or going through. And I think it was great. It's, you know, knowing Sally Hawkins from just her acting career, like, I know this woman can speak. So I was like, okay, this is really good as an actor to have really good ASL language, which she had to learn in just a matter of weeks. So applaud to her. She did great. Especially during the 60s where she had to learn a certain time period cadence of speech because, you know, so many decades ago, language is different now. And so to go back and learn the specific language for that time, along with sign language, it's it's a whole different type of skill set that she had to learn. Well, specifically, I want to ask you guys about two moments. Let's start with this one. We've been talking about Giles. Uh, There's that great moment where she says, say everything I sign. And, you know, because to me that's a powerful moment because of the fact that she's, for the first time, he has to hear her words. Granted, he's speaking them, but he has to actually now intake her words and not just visually see them and brush them off. Uh, And and it really makes that extremely, extremely powerful. And I wanted to kind of obviously get your perspective on the whole I loved scene. it. I'd, I'd have to say that was one of my favorite scenes of this entire film because I think the acting and the writing just works so well in this scene. It's, it's actually very simplistic, but, you know, simplicity goes a long way. And I think it was gorgeous because I think Sally Hawkins, just her facial expressions, her physical movements, you can tell she was hurt, but also very, like, emotionally rocked by everything that was going on. And I think this is why she's going to be nominated, and she has been nominated for Golden Globe for this film already. But just this scene alone, you can isolate it, and I think it's just amazing acting all around. Let's not forget, again, we have a triangle of characters. You know, I want to hear what she says, and this is a man of power, Strickland, who's talking to an African-American woman and and putting, because she has to say, we're talking about the scene in the office, right? No, we're talking about the scene where she's trying to convince Giles to, you know, do this operation and... Break oh, out because I thought we were talking monster. about the other scene where Shannon is like telling. No, we'll get to that. Oh, but I, to me, there were. I thought that's what the scene where. I mean, if you want, yeah. go ahead. No, 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 no. We can talk. This about This is that the more one. emotional scene. See, but to me, the, the, this is the power play scene, in which, again, the words are, "I want to know exactly what she's saying, what she's signing. I want to hear," and we don't get. Think well, he doesn't get exactly what she's signing. Because she's swearing at him, and 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 Zelda's got to say, "Oh, she's saying," because she was saying like "fuck," and yeah. "fuck and, you," and "fuck F- you," yeah. and and so 
that to me was a great scene uh, because again, it's this power, it's, it's language. It's all about communicating in language. And if you don't know language and enough to break it down, you're still not getting the whole story and you can be lied to and your power is taken away from you literally because you don't know. So that scene, I thought, and the way Michael Shannon played it, or the way they all three played it, because there was fear in, in Eliza's face, and then there was then there was Zelda going, "What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Like I, I, how, how, how are we going to do this? Lie? How am I going to lie and make it believable?" And again, being an African American woman in this, he was coming down pretty hard. You're right. The other scenes are more emotional, of course, but I, for some reason, that one scene stuck to me and again when we're talking about monsters who's the real monster in this movie and we know it's not necessarily the gill man is a monster but strickland is the true scary monster for me uh for me i also wanted to talk about the the other scene for me was the one where she actually does speak or sing rather and dance because on paper, I understood it, I got it, but just the way it was executed, I just felt it wasn't needed. It was a little bit too much. It slowed down the plot at that point. I, I, I unfortunately was taken a, a little bit back by that. I mean, I can understand why you say that, but I think the movie did a great job of developing. Like, those are the type of movies she loves, and she she hears the music, and you, you know, you see her dance and and listen to the music, and so she she loves that. So I think she would take something that she loves and apply it to her own life to explain something that she always wanted in in the way that she, she always loves watching. You know, the, those those old classic musicals. You know, and I mean, like, I get it. It might have been a, a break in the pacing but i think that's definitely how she would imagine if she could actually speak that's how she would like it, just convey her emotions well and again i'm not i think it was giles who loved the musical that she watched the musicals with and he told she also her, loved it know, too but he was the one that basically said oh my god this actress she was amazing in this and this was, and so through that enthusiasm she gets that but don't forget dance is another interpretive form of art where you don't need you don't need to speak did I mind it I understand what you're saying it breaks up the pacing but I just I thought it was beautifully shot and this is it, to your point this is the way that Eliza is going to this is how she feels. This is how she's going to emote her happiness and love. And to her, that comes down to a musical number. Um, which, by the way, was shot in color. <laughs> and, and, it, and then it was put in chroma, chroma key. They, 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 they fixed, they made it black and white in chrome color. Uh, they also brought in a, a, a full-on orchestra for that scene. And they didn't exactly set up for the orchestra what they were being called in for. So Guillermo del Toro tells the story, he goes, it was sort of kind of funny where they all showed up in their tuxedos to play, and then as soon as they see a gill man come out, <laughs> the looks on their faces were like, and he goes, it was a beautiful day. He goes, it was such a wonderful day. And when I recount that scene, now knowing that story and how it's filmed, I'm like going, that's awesome. I think it was also Women Fell Guillermo because during the research, too, he originally wanted this entire movie in black and white, but due to budget constraints, he couldn't. And which is ironic. You think black and white would be cheaper, but I guess not. 
But I think having that one scene, black and white, it's like color wasn't needed. But like you said, Dimitri, like dance is a universal language that everyone can um, connect with and and learn from and talk to each other in in a certain physical way. And I I really enjoyed it. Maybe not as much as you, but I enjoyed it. I love dance. I mean, I get it. well. You can look at the dance part of it, and also if you go back to that moment where she is. Uh, having Jao speak on her own behalf, she says uh, that the monster never looks at her imperfections. And so if you're lo- watching that scene, and it's, it is black and white, and where we have seen everything in color, it's inter- I get it, you're not looking at the imperfections, that still is a perfect scene, despite not having color, and, and the dancing is obviously very beautiful. So I get it. <laughs> right. uh, Was it I- needed? For me, no. For you, it slowed things down. I also appreciated it because, again, being a fan of the Universal Classic Horror movies, one of them being Creature from the Black Lagoon, we actually got to see Gilman, or the creature, um, in his native black and white, um, which was very interesting in in the coloring that they had to do for for his suit. Now, again, the idea of of filming uh, in classic black and white they instead changed to monochromatic tones of color. And that right there just created or shifted light and texture to craft a more modern, yet des- it was still desaturated in a sense, but it didn't look like it was in the 30s or 40s. It did, That movie looked beautiful in the 60s. Yeah, had, that yeah. whole set. Like, you can displace Eliza mm-hmm. and Gilman slash Acid with Fred Astaire and Jenny mm-hmm. Rogers, and it would look exactly like an old-time classic movie. Yeah, and the palettes of the blue and the green, they only used red for blood. Um, there was amber and a counterbalance. Teal. Teal. It's not green. It was beautifully shot and beautifully lit. It's particularly the creature. But all, you know, Eliza's dresses. Or, or wonderful the, the 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 whole notion and concept and again this just goes into del toro's love and romance for not only monsters but movies that she lived above a movie theater like that to me that that, that romantic notion of being inspired by film and um, the film manager wanting her to come and watch the latest movie and giving her tickets and her best friend Giles, or one of her best friend Giles, who has a love and appreciation for those old musicals, you know, it was it was as much a romanticizing of of movies uh, as much as it was for the classic Universal horror movies. It was just beautiful so, in those themes and tones. So let's talk about the monster <clears throat> or the asset, whatever you want to call it, Gilman. <laughs> I'll call I'll, I'll I'll keep trying to call him Gilman. Okay. I slip up. Yeah. I slip up. Because, you know, part of that we have to talk about the inspiration, right? He's a creature from the Black Lagoon, and essentially he he has taken this notion ever since he was a kid. What if they got together? And that's what this becomes. But in a and one of the more interesting parts of it too, though, is that Del Toro, uh, from from what I've read, has said. All the other monster movies had, have kind of dealt with his fears between the ages of seven and nine. You know, when he was young. This stems from, from he calls it, in a way, his only adult monster film. 
showcasing his fears as an adult human being, not as a child. And so, A, I would love to get your perspective on that. And then, B, we can get into talking about the monster, the asset, Gilman. Right. I mean, I can I can see why he says the more adult version of the, the monster, because as a child, that obviously a creature for the Black Lagoon obviously affected him. And I think more adults will actually enjoy the storyline because it, it is a more mature storyline. Um, and, and the demographic, I think, definitely appeals more to the adult audience compared to a 12-year-old saying this movie is not going to... I don't want to guarantee, but probably will not like this movie as much as an adult, like people in our age would. Um, so I, I can understand that there are more adult-heavy themes in, in this, um, especially with the political, ge- geographical climate that's going on in this movie. It's more adult-heavy themed. But I would, I would argue, though, too, that, that thematically, movies like The Devil's Backbone for him deal with adult themes. But he'll have kids in them, much like Pan's Labyrinth, but where the kids might feel like they're odd or they're not paid attention to. I don't uh, think there's any ch- children other than maybe Michael's kids, Michael right, Shannon's kids. Awareness. I yeah, think those are no the, kids. the only is Strickland's kids, and there are no or the kids only two kids in Crimson Peak uh, as well. There weren't any yeah. children there. But again, it just goes back to the way. Del Toro viewed those monsters, other than just being scary, they were they were put into a position of being scary. Frankenstein was being hunted down by the, by the angry mob. <clears throat> even the even the Gill Man, you know, who lived in peace in the Amazon here until these people came, and he was the 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 last of his kind, and he was just looking for a companionship, and these people come along and they try to take him away from that. And, and and the creature wants no part of it. Even the Wolfman is yeah, is, is, is is hunted down. So by his peers. He looked at it from the position of monsters are being hunted down for being different. So this creature is the same thing. He wants they're gonna look at the two other stories I've told. So we had the asset, he's being called the asset. Mm-hmm. We, we the only way we're gonna learn from him is if we kill him and dissect him, vivisect him. The Russians just wanted to kill him so that the Americans didn't have the knowledge. They didn't even want to learn, except for that one scientist, right? So this poor creature, he's taken from his home. He's, we, we get a hint that he was called a god. Mm-hmm. But he's just taken, he's prodded, and he's prodded, poked, beaten. And he has one person who even that trust took a little while to gain. Um, so... Again, he, he, I love that they bring this monster, this Gilman, into this world. And the monster himself learns that, you know, there is some goodness. There, humanity can be good. It's not all Strickland. Like, Giles he falls in love with, even after being afraid, afraid of him. Cats, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I love that the monster or Gilman has his arc and learning curve as well. And he learns from humans compassion and love. Obviously a very beautiful takeaway. Yeah, yeah, and I I liked the way it progressed. Right, Mm. I didn't think it was too fast. I didn't think it was too slow. I really, in the economy of words, uh, and I'm not just talking about, um, you know, her. I'm talking about just in general, every time we got to see the monster, was very well used. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and you could tell, like, when, when, yeah, when Strickland was there, he hated his guts. For good reason. But um, even with, um, I'll call him Dimitri instead of, some of the, anyway, the sure. Russian, right? The Dimitri. Russian. Mm-hmm. Y- y- with him, there was a kind of middle ground, right? Because he didn't know how to feel about Dimitri. Right. He was helpful, but yet he was still part of that system versus um, Eliza, who wasn't. And, uh, yeah, I thought, I, thought, I thought it worked really, really well. Uh, and I liked the way they pieced the information about him. You know, as you said, we got the hint that he might have been a god. And just by, by Giles' hair growing back... That's a great scene. <laughs> you kind of wonder, okay, maybe, he's not maybe a god in the sense of how we view gods. Mm-hmm. But there's godlike features within him. Sure. Yeah, he's capable of doing things that humans are. And he's able to resurrect. Of. He's able to yeah. resurrect that here. I mean, I, I, he's I, able to regenerate as uh-huh. well faster than humans, especially you know with the bullet. He, sure. he just <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing. Um, I, I did like the. Uh, it could be an allegory or some symbolism of the egg. Um, you're, you're talking about how it's progressed, but like this development and how it started with them just bonding over an egg, but then literally cracking it open like you have the hard shell but underneath it's soft um and i think that was like for the relationship it you can judge it by its cover but as you get to know it it's actually it's humanity there there's a soft side there's compassion and love between these two um i liked it yeah. That's a good way to look at it. I was too shallow and i was like i want eggs right now eggs. <laughs> <laughs> hard boiled eggs and we don't know what kind of eggs we don't know what will happen. <laughs> so, leg, eggs were laid. <laughs> so, and that, then the movie made no qualms about that at all. No. So, um, but, but I, I like the creature being, even having these godlike <clears throat> powers, but in times able to show compassion. You know, you mentioned Dimitri, the Russian spy. That's an interesting character, too, because as we learned, the Russians want to destroy the assets so the Americans don't have information. They weren't trying to steal it so that they would have the information on their own. They just wanted it done. They just wanted them out. Yet this agent, he notices and recognizes that this asset, this Gilman, is much more than that. He notices that there is a sentience, a self-awareness, and there can be a compassion with him. And he wanted him to live. And his whole... His whole mission became to help Eliza with the escape route. Because get him in, dump him into the Brooklyn, let him swim away. He deserves a life like we all do. And I really like that, particularly being in the 60s with the Russians and going into a Cold War. It made him, it made that scientist, again, just play against type about he wasn't the evil scientist. It was a nice twist when we found out that he's a Russian agent. And then you're thinking, oh, damn it, he's, he's a, he is an evil scientist. But, but he was a nice he was guy. He a good guy. But he, yeah. good guy. he had that great line, yes, I'm a patriot, but I'm a scientist first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that really worked well yeah. overall. Uh, yeah, I, I love Dimitri over, overall. Uh, I, you know, tragic character in the end. But, yeah. No, Very I tragic. so wanted him to live. Yeah, I had a feeling time was going to be, you know, he was not long for the world of Shape of Water. But I was hoping, I was rooting for him that maybe he would even end up staying in the Americas. 
you know, being Giles's friend and or and Zelda's friend, and or just the Gilman's friend. Yeah. The Gilman needs a medical person to True. help him. Yeah, but I I really appreciated his intelligence level or, or intelligence in situations that weren't um, that that could have caused a lot of fear, whether it be with Strickland or his own people. He has that great line with Strickland of uh, "It's Doctor." I'm just following protocol. <laughs> right. And and uh, as far as uh, you can't make profit off of last week's fish. <laughs> so I, I thought that was very clever because, you know, under the, the stereotype you could see of, of someone just really, for lack of a better term, fucking that up where they'd be like, oh, blah, 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 yeah, um, no, it's uh, I dumped the, the thing and it's done. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I think Dimitri did a great job of Thank you. standing. Thank you. <laughs> of standing. Can't his... believe we waited that long. Yeah. I, I, I was, was waiting for it that. It's holding it in my pocket. Right. Like I was saying, I, I think Dimitri did a great job of standing Thank his you. his own ground, um, especially well, like you said when he was with the Russians. Uh, he, uh, like he was very strong, and yes, there were moments where you can tell he was nervous just about the situation. Um, he was in, but when it came like facing opposite Strickland or even Hoyt when he's trying to convince to put the Gilman back into the water, it's like he needs to breathe. Like he he would say the moments that like no one else would want to say, but he would he'd be looking out for someone else before himself. And we also knew that Dmitri was a spy. He was trained as such. That scene where his colleagues came to his flat. And he sees the gun. Again, Del Toro's masteries. You're thinking, "Oh shit, is going to go down." They're here to they're here to kill him, <laughs> as the character thought. And uh, as he's feeding him, he gets up, and he's only in a shirt, his underwear, and some socks. And then when the camera just goes from behind, he's holding that like Michael Myers long laden knife, and you're going, "Oh." Oh, yeah. Things are going to go down, and it's not going to be pretty. And the way that that, that was a suspenseful scene, at least for me. Yeah, no, it really was. And scene. it was against his own people, too. So yeah. That's the scary part. Yeah, they really played that well. To your initial point, yeah, his his spy training came into play because he, he asked, hey, does anybody want cake? And that allowed him to get the knife in the first place. And... You know, just even the way he concealed it the entire time. For, uh, now, granted, looking back on it, maybe they knew they just didn't give a rat's ass because they were playing with him. They mm -hmm. knew they wanted to get him to the extraction point and extract him. Right. Um, who knows? Yeah. No password today? Not today. Nah. <laughs> it, was a, but it was a very well-played-out scene. And it made me appreciate that character of Dimitri even more. Because he was going to fight. He wasn't going to go down without doing so. And he proved his, he showed his medal that, and I was like, oh, he's a good guy. He is a good guy. <laughs> I think the great thing with uh, <clears throat> Dimitri's character was that uh, he, his stakes were higher than everybody else, really. Because he was fighting against two different parties. <laughs> yeah. So it hit, be he was with the Americans who were always fighting him just on his work. And then the, the Russians who were trying to tell him what to do. So I, I think, again, he just played... Uh, he, he stood his own ground. Yeah. Yeah. He's good. Um, 
Fair enough. I, I do want to go back to, I want to talk about Colonel Hoyt for one moment. Sure. Because that was, to me, one of the more interesting moments when he's like, this, you know, you can't ever get decency, um, and a, a decent man is one who doesn't ever fuck up. You have 36 hours. or But it's, because it's not a normal, you have 36 hours, get this done. You have 36 hours where I will literally end your life. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, just very menacing, you know. And, he, and, and it ties into Dimitri because Dimitri, like, under no circumstances can you kill the creature. See this son? I have five of these. Count right? That means I can do whatever the fuck I, I want. Yeah. That scene is fantastic because Strickland has a great bit of a monologue there, where he goes about. He's under the guy again. It just goes to, like, what he believed in that system is that same system that's taking him down. He believed he had a friend in the general. He believed that the general would give him that second chance because he's always been on point. And right here is is the anomaly. And he's like, yeah, I'm doing the best I can. But that guy was like, your your career will be over, done. Your family, done. That was a scary point. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like how Hoyt did put uh, Strickland in his place when necessary. Sure. Someone had to. Well, but it wasn't for the right reason. It would be different if, if Dr. Hofstadter was like, no, you can't kill the creature because of X, Y, and Z, and that put mm-hmm. him in his place. No, he's putting him in place for a bad reason. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The other thing, too, um, though, and this is going to your point of, of Strickland redemption, in so many movies, um, Splash is a really good mm-hmm. example. Eugene Levy's character, as the scientist who, who believes in the mermaid, sees and knows there is a mermaid, yet all of his doctor brethren laugh at him until, until they see the mermaid, and then they steal the project away from Eugene Levy's character, and he has the turn. He then goes to help the mermaid escape. This movie doesn't do that. Like, in that scene where Hoyt just dresses down Strickland, you could think that there would be an epiphany in Strickland and going, what the fuck am I fighting for? What am I doing here? There's, nobody's loyal to me. My, my own company, my own structure is disloyal. It's just turned me away. Jesus, well, I want to fuck them over. I'm going to help them. I'm going to help this creature escape. But that doesn't happen. He, he doubles down and says, I'm going to get that creature to save myself and my family. And I don't care what I have to do or who I have to kill to get that done. He never does. He never has that change. So that, to me, too, is a sign where if there was any sign of redemption, it was, it was just it a realization that I was, uh, you know what, I was wrong. And that's, that, that's a great way for a villain to, to, to go actually, when you think about it, is, you know, he has that epiphany right at the end of his life. Like, I fucked up. I was wrong. I chose the wrong side. So are you saying that he was redeemed? No, no. No, 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 no. no. All right. So you guys appreciated this a little bit more than I did, so I'll let you guys go to town on this. (laughs) The theme of the love story. What do we take away from from this love story? And and it gets bookended by narration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so. I think it's the, the added uh, that old tale of, you know, 
don't judge a book by its cover. And, like, the whole Beauty and the Beast, you know, story. I so thought you were going to say Tale as Old as Time. <laughs> tale as Old as Time. Well, yeah, and I'm bringing it up. It's, it's like, you... Just because it looks like a monster doesn't mean it actually is a monster. And Liza had that time to really get to know the creature because the creature was getting to know her at the same time. And it it just, like, slowly developed. It was a unlikely pairing that, at the end of the day, it's endearing to watch. It got weird at some points, not gonna lie. There was moments where I was like, okay, all right, I'll go with this. But... Just the overall message of it, just because it looks like a monster doesn't mean it is. Yeah, I mean, thematically, for me, what brought it home was the, was the bookend of the, the start of the poem, the end of the poem um, that he wrote, where even at the end, love is all conquers around. All. Well, it's not even conquers, <laughs> it's, it's all around us. Takes any shape. Yeah, and... That, to me, was the beauty of it. Now, did I need explanation of that? I was like, well, alrighty then. Okay. Wasn't looking for it. I would have just gotten it. I, I could put two and two together, come up with 22. But that was like, when, when we're explaining the scene, I was like, okay, I'm very curious as to how people are going to take this. I mean, the criticism of the movie has been great 94 95% rotten tomatoes super high. so it's really super high you know but again this movie ain't going to play well so much in say Alabama or the Midwest maybe i mean you could take it you can take it for its literal physical visual self or you can expand and say oh okay i'll i'll go with it it was a very strong fearless thing to put into a movie and I thought that Sally Hawkins played it wonderfully as well as Doug Jones as mm-hmm. the creature it's awkward you know this he's not Mr. Limpet and it's not Daryl Hannah from Splash who would you know she and Tom Hanks get together she's human she has legs but she's a mermaid um it was just interesting um, I, I, you, you go along with the story, like you said at the top. But that's also you have what... to suspend your disbelief, and it's what Guillermo del Toro, that is his romanticizing that. You know what? Right. We can have, we can coexist. But even Guillermo del Toro said, you know, on set, <clears throat> the, the actor said that, like, there were moments when Guillermo, because he knew some of the story plots were so absurd that he even said out loud, is this too weird? Our audience going to tune out? So, like, even Guillermo was very well aware of what he was doing and that it is different and people might not take to it. But I think there was a fine balance. Had it keep happening over and over and over again where it became gratuitous, then we're like, all right, done. But, yeah, like, I'm sure, I'm glad they, like, referenced it once and then moved on. Mm-hmm. Well, there was the, there was the time when she, she throws the shower curtain and I thought, oh, okay, you know what? Fine. I'm in. Uh, and then they kind of joke about it. I was like, okay, that's pretty funny. But what really took it over the top for me was was the whole, she just keeps the water running. I thought that was a little bit much. I think I, I applaud him for going for it and the fact that people are really responding to it well because I think if he really did go into it with a certain amount of trepidation, it wouldn't have worked. 
So I do appreciate that matter. Uh, but to your point, and as, I, and as I'm thinking about it in terms of Splash, I think it would have been fine to create a connection. Like the, the fact that he can touch someone's head and, and have a mental connection, I think that could have been strong enough up until the end when she changes into a gillfished human. Sure. Right. Uh, and, and then go off and have... Well, think about that it. Was a mo- oh, that, no, no, no. Go ahead. That was a moment I so <clears throat> thought, because we had the whole moment with Giles and the gill man and the hair growing back, and I legit had a moment I was like, is he going? Is the gill man going to heal Eliza and her, her speaking? She's actually going to get a voice? Because I know just her as an actress, I know she can speak just as right. a human. So I was like, just waiting for that moment that she was going to get her voice back. And I think that would have been an amazing arc to her character. And just the movie in general at the end where she can speak again. Or like just speak and actually have that physical voice um that didn't happen and it turned out a different way with her actually turning into a fish well i felt the marks on her neck were very foreshadowing of them being gills yeah they look like yeah so also the fact that strickland says oh no you were saved from the river right oh well you're going back to the river (laughs) good for you Uh, but i was gonna say though another movie cocoon is another movie in which Steve Gutenberg's character has some relationship with one other woman who's an alien, but it's only when they strip off their skin that there's an alien. So it makes it, it makes that part palatable. I mean, it makes it very palatable that uh, <clears throat> palatable that that Superman can have a relationship with Lois Lane when he's he's an alien. He's from another planet, but in he human looks form. he looks very very human. They look very much like us. Um, when when watching Creature from the Black Lagoon, the creature obviously has feelings and emotions. Um, right now, I can't think of the actress's name. Um, but the one Julie... Female, oh, yeah, Julie... Um, yeah. I know Rico Browning uh, oh, played him under... But, but she, Julie Adams. Julie Adams. Very beautiful in that movie. But the creature obviously is falling in love with Julie Adams and wants that companionship, Del Toro just takes that, he takes that to the next level. He really does kick it up notches. It's like atonement for the, uh, for the creature of the Black Lagoon. Like, I'll actually let you have the girl this time. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you know, you get the girl, but the, the fact that our two main characters can't speak and that even the creature Gilman himself is learning certain things about sign that she's teaching him and he's catching on. But yet we know when the creature is agitated, don't we? We know when the creature is scared. We also know when that creature is angry. We don't need to hear him speak it, but we yeah. see the gills flapping. And I think that's a good distinction because there's, there's speaking and there's communicating. So right. just because he can't speak doesn't mean he can't communicate. Mm-hmm. One of the, as far as love, I, I want to touch upon this, and we don't have to go too far with it, but uh, Giles, to me, was a tragic character because he, they, they make a point that he's a gay character, and he gets shut down in the most rudest of ways, obviously a sign of the times back then, and I felt bad for him. I, you know, he does this amazing thing, and I just wish his future looked a little bit happier. <laughs> In some sense, I know he's going to be okay and he'll live and may, maybe him and Zelda continue to be friends, but, but you know, I just he deserves a little bit more, I feel like. 
Right. I felt bad for him, especially, you know, oppression of homosexuality, especially back then. Um, I, I did feel bad for him, especially because we saw that, that man working at the diner. He was so nice. He didn't expect him to do a complete, you know, 360 or 180, whatever number. It would be a 180. 360 would bring him back. <laughs> a complete 180 and shut him out, like, as abruptly as he did. And I think it, I'm trying to remember if this was before the scene where Giles and Sally had that emotional scene where she's this was meeting. right after, right after, because then he comes back to her and says, "Okay, I'm in." Okay. Yes. Uh, so, and I think had that not happened to him, he still would have been opposed to this breakout plan um, because he now knows that Eliza actually has a real connection with this creature because. He is, it's something that he's lacking in his personal life that maybe he could give Eliza a chance to have something sure. that he can. <clears throat> the character of Giles is, is a, he's a romantically tr- tragic character who <clears throat> gets to keep his life. He's not like a tragic, you know, he's not like a tragic hero or, or the such, but think about everything that's affecting that character being the time that that character is in, 1962. The scene in which we were talking about, there are a couple of things going on simultaneously. And, and, and leading up to that, the soda jerk guy, you know, he seemed like, well, he was a, he was a bartender. And he listened to Giles. He gave Giles attention, um, even though the pie sucked. Giles would keep on going back. As an audience, we knew why he kept going back. It obviously wasn't for the pie, <laughs> right? And, and you know, and and that man seemed to return. He seemed to have some emotional vestige in in, in Giles. He liked the guy. So, but the scene, that pivotal scene, there was a couple of things going on. He touched him by the arm, pulls back, and then the African American couple comes into an empty, an empty soda shop, and he. Number one, he, he, out of fear, he becomes a monster. He jumps back, looks at, he goes, hey, what's going on? And then he treats the, he looks at the couple and he boots them out. But then Giles says, you know, then it starts to sink in on him that this guy, forget about the fact that he, forget about the fact that he is a homophobe. But he just mistreated these people when there was no need to do so. And he even says so, because, you know, there was no need to be so rude to those people. But the sign of the times, I'm not excusing it. And then he says, yeah, well, they didn't have to be here, and, you know, neither do you. And also think about, from a technology standpoint, what's going on in 1962? Giles is an artist. He's a wonderful artist. There was marketing was sold on that type of art that he was doing, right? The Norman Rockwell-ish kind of posters, art. Posters, yeah. Right? The posters. The American the packaging, life. The American life. Eating jello. And yet his former lover, that's the way that I sort of kind of looked at that gentleman, that he was fired from a job. But he even said that things are moving to photographs. Yeah, your artwork is beautiful, but times are changing, and you're not changing with them. And that, to me, was tragic as well. But his new lease on life is that perhaps with the help of this god, this creature, this gillman, he's made to feel younger. So maybe he has a second chance where he can learn this technology. He has Zelda as a friend. You know, he's, he's certainly a good artist. He's so got his hair hope. back. So. He's got his hair back. <laughs> so he's more youthful. Yeah. He's so, just... <clears throat> you know. 
But he was a tragic character. Everything was going against him. Yeah, you fell for him. You did. You did. Um, all right, let's shift gears in, into the production side of things. Sure. Uh, because we, of course, be remiss to not talk about it. We touched upon production in the sense that uh, that this movie brought about greens. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. anything that uh, wasn't green was very purposeful. Uh, in particular, we mentioned blood. But just uh, cinematography in general, let's, let's talk about it. Because whether it be the movements... To me, it felt like the camera was always moving. Even in the sometimes in a big flashy way, for example, to me when when he's car shopping, Strickland is that's a great tracking shop because mm-hmm. it's supposed to be this grand thing, and even but then you have subtlety of of we'll just keep referring to the scene where Giles and um, her she's having him speak on her behalf. That camera's moving ever so slightly, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and if nothing else, water is everywhere in some shape. Well, or form. <laughs> I'll end it there. In some shape. Yeah, um, I, I loved the visual look uh, of this film. Especially, um, I said it at the top of the show, of how this movie opened. When you see Eliza living out her day-to-day routine, um, as the credits are rolling by, so is the cameras. It's going up and down and her out of the theater and going onto a bus and moving and like literally just tracking her following literally her every movement um it just gave it a lot of energy and like a kinetic motion to it and it visually helps the audience already just get engaged into the movie Mm -hmm. i think was so well done and although there is a lot of camera movement it's not there were times where it was so subtle i mean it wasn't shaky cam movement it was just no, beautiful. No. Yeah, it was just beautiful camera movement. Um, Dan Lostson, who is the cinematographer uh, in this, he he himself, uh, you know, when he read this script, he was like, "How the hell am I going to shoot this movie?" He was, "What does he want?" Um, but Guillermo del Toro, he uh, he sat him down and he just gave him, he told him his vision and from there he was like, okay, this can be done and uh, they originally wanted to do it on film uh, and uh, he, he went digital. Um, you can compose a lot more film, like you were saying black and white, but yeah, film it, in this day and age is far more expensive because it's, uh, well, it's just not used anymore. Right. Um, there's not so, a lot of plus processing <clears throat> plants. Yeah, there's That's not processing really what it comes down to. plants or, or even stock. trying to get film stock. Um, it ends up, go figure that it ends up boosting the budget. So he used uh, the Ari Alexa Digital and uh, was using Prime, uh, the Ari Zeiss Master Prime lenses. And, you know, you got a crisp image. Now, what I really loved about this movie is that it also used old school special effects. They used dry for wet. Like, this reminds me of, like, the sea view. <laughs> the submarine, like, when they when they would film an underwater sequence where it's completely dry, but through the use of, of smoke and some wind and great suspension of the characters, it gave it the, well, it gave it the look of fluidity and, and them actually being in water and being suspended. But that's, an, that's such an old-school trick but in this movie it, it looked beautiful then when you color it the way that it's colored oh the color you, i have a lot on the color yeah the color was just perfect 
where in sometimes in black and white when you do that underwater you can tell it's it's a set rocks the, but right. here it was done very very cheaply cheap and like efficient I, I think um, all the sets were practical so mm-hmm. like he, he he really used the physical sets for for the filming but you mentioned the color and obviously this visual colors I, I love Guillermo del Toro's color palette in all of his films let me talk about his color um, for this one he Guillermo actually had a box full of Benjamin Moore color samples there's like 30 3,500 different samples mm-hmm. and him and Dan Lawson went through every single color and uh, out of all those they picked a hundred different specific colors that they kept to this entire film and it was mostly blues greens teals um, you know shape color c- like the color palette of what you would consider water or aka my shirt so <laughs> and then of course the, the use of red throughout that because red is a complementary color to green so it's definitely going to um, stand out when they wanted it like uh, during the moments when we saw blood you saw the blood um, I think it was and I liked their their self-awareness of how much green that they were using green candy the green soap dispensers even when they're shopping for cars it's not green it's teal you know so the, they were very aware of their color choices and it looked gorgeous production wise I don't know if you guys noticed this much but just the 60s never really had hard edges it didn't seem no. like everything was slightly rounded mm-hmm. from the cars to everything else and I appreciated that uh, because it, it gave it a smooth texture as opposed to these harsh lines. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> whether it be in the diner or whether it be in Gilman's laboratory where he's captured those big steel pipes, right, gave the look of this huge steel heavy pipes all curved, like you said. It was, uh, to, uh, to an extent, steampunkish, right? And those, all those steam pipes were uh, styrofoam. <laughs> which is fin again magic of movies but it, it looked to your you know all those rounded edges yeah it gave uh his his steampunk look to it uh and and he captured it very very well and using the colors even even like a loading dock or even going to i don't know was that the brooklyn <clears throat> wherever they were like the, the the apartment the bathtub you know her bathroom uh, when it fills up with water, it becomes a tank itself. Um, all of the lighting is used to great effect to give us this, you know, to give us just a beautiful visual. It's, a, it's the lighting oh. and the color because Gamma wanted a different set of color palettes for each character. So Eliza was mostly blues, dark blues, blue, green, you know, cyan, that type of um, color of water. And uh, with, with Zelda and Giles, is more the earthly warm brown, yellow, orange, mm-hmm. earth, earth tone colors, um, but are completely different, yet they're in the same world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about the iron lung contraption that the creature has brought uh, when he's brought into the, uh, into the, the lab, the tank? The tank. <clears throat> Absolutely. So there was even green, uh, I didn't know if it was to emulate like algae, but. It I floated so. on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was very, there was green very swamp-like. Everywhere. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, all right. Let's let's move on to music. Michael Desplat. Does Alexander. Is it? No, is Alexander. It? Alexander. Why did I say 
Yes. Michael Giancino. <laughs> Michael's in this movie. Yes. I was thinking of Michael Giancino. And then I... Alexander Desplat. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, so he does the score, and I thought uh, very, very well done. To me, it was very much inspired by the movies that they watched, and it had that mm. rhythm, that tone, that upbeat. Uh, and even in moments when there's tension, they still use it to great effect with that upbeatness rather than go uh, slower and methodical with it. Right. But he also added something that Guillermo del Toro himself says, you don't hear quite much anymore in score or any type of music is whistling. Whistling. Which gave it a humanistic quality. Um, You know, they could have gone the route of a lot of those... uh, universal classic horror movies, particularly Creature from the Black Lagoon has that that refrain that comes up dun 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 anytime that the creature's on screen. But I they went to a more softer tone, a, a better palette, I felt, that really played nicely. There's every possibility that, that this plot could be nominated for Best Score when it comes time. Yeah, and he to the Academy Awards. He's been Golden Globe <clears throat> nominated already for this film, uh, just as of yesterday, as we do this show. But uh, you mentioned the whistling. That was actually actually Alexander Desplat's actual own whistling that he <laughs> imposed into the com- composing sound effect or sound score and uh, Guillermo wanted whistling because it was a contrast to water because you can't whistle underwater no. so uh, he that that's an, like an added effect that people wouldn't really think about before the orchestra uh, Desplat really wanted uh, a fluidity in the, the music so he used a lot of flutes and um, like woodwind type of instruments Twelve. to, 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 Twelve to get flutes. yeah to, to get the uh, more fluid type of sound for, you know, to convey water in the music. Well, the whistling was a contrast to her, too, because it, when we first get it, she's on the bus and she's pretending to whistle, but you hear the whistles. Mm-hmm. So you're like, huh? Oh, okay. I guess that works. And, and, and you slowly kind of buy into it, and, and it does work to great effect. I think the just the audio sound effects too. On top of the whistling, I think audio was done really well. You can mm-hmm. definitely tell the the tonal shifts when it came to a scary scene. Or um, I think one of the greatest transition audio transitions was when this sounds terrible. But when Strickland was uh, having sex with his wife, yeah. and you you hear this rhythmic pounding sound, and it literally cuts right to the scene into the um, the lab. And it's to the exact same beat and rhythm of the generator. Mm-hmm. I think that was a brilliant audio yeah. edited. Yeah, and, and this was one of the few times, apparently, uh, Del Toro doesn't usually attend his recording sessions. But this one, he was, he was even more hands-on. And he basically said, Alexander himself had said, you know, I'd really love for you to come down here. I would love for you to be by my side and he to help Paris. guide me. You know, tell me, more emotion, less emotion, what do you want? And they actually, the, the collaboration Alexander Desplat goes on was, was, was wonderful. It was exactly what I needed, and Del Toro was a wonderful collaborator, and he helped hone this, the, the music and the shape of the music, the shape of the notes, so to speak. <laughs> oh, the puns. <laughs> the puns so continue. Um, as far as editing's concerned... It's we, we talk about this oftentimes. When it's done well, 
There's not much to talk about. Yeah, and... In the best of ways, because it, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make things seamless from start right. to finish. And even though I, I, I made gripe about going into the black and white, I mean, all in all, as an actual editing technique and how fluid it was, both acting cinematography and, and the way they, they put it together in editing, right. it does flow from one to the next. And even some of the transitions, uh, you, you pointed out one, but... There's oftentimes whether it's rain falling down, right. and then we get the mop at the at the laboratory and so forth. They were very purposeful in in the cuts that they made. Yeah, right. and there was a, a visual transition when it was when the roof was leaking, and then we saw the water yeah. droplets literally taking you across the screen to another location. Right. I thought it was visually um, well executed. Yeah. And the and the ending for me again, it just. It is a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale. Um, it is a creature. It is a monster's fairy tale, or uh, Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. uh, type of fairy tale. Although, with with this Gilman, you know, there were very many aspects of the Gilman that were beautiful to look at, um, especially, particularly when in the folds of his skin had the blue light, his luminosity. Uh, he looked like a beautiful creature um, that could dis- that put that on display in which he has his, his powers. So the use of light, again, was just the, the, the perfectly set detail within that costume, which was very, very skin tight, had corsets upon corsets. Um, Doug Jones Doug said Jones, he was 56 yeah. years old, and he said... <laughs> You know, he, he he was put through the most rigorous workout to be able to fit into the suit. Think back to the day where Creature from the Black Lagoon, Rico Browning, who played the creature underwater, got the gig because he was able to hold his breath the longest <laughs> to do that. And so now we have Doug Jones. Is it because I'm a good actor? No. No, you can hold your breath the longest and swim the longest in that suit. So... With Doug Jones, again, a little bit of a departure, albeit they still use some digital effects within the creature, but it's sort of, we're not doing motion capture. No, it was actually a a practical suit. Uh, You know, Del Toro, you know, his love for monster suits and and just monsters in general. He actually had the the concept design for for a long time. He worked with Dave Grosso and David Ming from Legacy VFX um, on the design uh, uh, of the creature, and they, they they made a lot of physical tweaks to it to make it look uh, somewhat menacing to Strickland, that Strickland would see it as a monster, but also soft enough features that you can, that, that was close enough to a human that you can, you know, uh, connect to for mm-hmm. Eliza. So there, there were a lot of different things, and they had two sculptors worked on the mech hats. Uh-huh. Of, of the suit and put it all t- together. It was a foam latex type of suit that it had to be somewhat for. practical and, yeah. and he had movable. to move around. Um, so I just find it interesting uh, that in 2014, Del Toro self-financed a group of artists uh, and sculptors using design and clay models to pitch the story mm-hmm. to, to to Fox Searchlight, and they were Good they came him. on board immediately. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the passion about Del Toro. And when you watch, again, 
even a movie like Pacific Rim. He loves the kaiju movies. He loves Godzilla. He loves these movies. And when he does it, he, he does it in such a loving way, right? So you, to me, it just helps bring you into the movie that much more. Whether it's, whether it's a piece like Pacific Rim, which is just pure full-out entertainment, you know, to, to, to a Crimson Peak, which is a gothic romance horror, horror movie. Um, but still, there's some stunning visuals to, 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 to Shape of Water, um, which I think is his peak for his real love of, of monster movies. And, and as a child, what they represented to him. And I love that this viewpoint, you know, he gives us a 180 viewpoint. Uh, we look at things differently through Guillermo del Toro's lens. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the, the, a movie like A Shape of Water a breath of fresh air. And, and you know, in this year's, it, yeah, in, in, in this year's, you know, movies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We'll omit the box office because right now there's, it'd be unfair to really talk about it. Um, it hasn't hit its stride yet in terms of, I mean, we barely got to see it in Los Angeles as is, so um, mm-hmm. it will be released wider in due time, so um, like I said, we'll just skip it. But let, let's talk about the critical response, because uh, as of right now, um, 94 on Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm. off of 182 reviews, that's really Super good. Yeah. Really good, and... Uh, I didn't grab the list yet, but um, Marissa, do you have the list of Golden... You kind of kept interspersing it. Do you want uh, to just give us the full yeah. rundown of Golden Globe nominations already? So, I mean, this this movie was already get, getting um, critical acclaim. It has seven... Uh, it leads the Golden Globe nominations for uh, seven, seven for uh, Best Director, Best Music Score, Best Actor, and... Uh, it's it's interspersed within <laughs> this rundown, um, and it also took the best picture prize at the Venice Film Festival that was earlier this year. Indeed, and yeah. all for comedy, correct? The Golden Globes, just like uh, The Martian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the best comedy goes to Shape of Water. <laughs> get out, <laughs> comedy or musical. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't Already know. Already seven. I mean, it's in the running for... It is oh, officially sure. award season. You know, and, and Sally uh, Hawkins has Hawkins. been, you know, her name has been thrown about a lot. It, I think deservedly so um, for her performance. Because, again, it's it's a very fearless performance in what she was asked to do. Not just learning the sign and doing it perfectly, but... There were nude scenes, scenes in bathtubs. There were things, and you know, she was just physically she, demanding. Physically demanding, and she did it, and she was wonderful. She was very captivating. Whether I can read sign or not, I can see the emotion on her face, or I can see her tap dancing it out, um, which I enjoyed that scene too. That that gave this movie, you know, it, it made it lively uh, in parts because of this character who couldn't speak a word. Absolutely. So, all right. Final <laughs> thoughts as we uh, wrap up the Shape of Water. Um, I love this film, uh, despite the some of the weird moments. Overall, <laughs> it is a great film. Visually, writing, acting, just production, put it together. It's a very solid film, and I would definitely buy this when this comes out. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And if there's a, you know, you these are the kind of movies you sort of hope for a commentary track. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think he will. And and he does, and he's so great at doing commentaries. You know, he he loves these. He loves making these movies. He he's proven to be a very visual style storyteller. Um, you know, and even in his admission, he had the one. Uh, he had the one, you know, the, the the one movie that wasn't necessarily. Um, it was the cockroach movie uh, that he did very, very early on. It was, I believe it was after Kronos um, with Mir Sorvino um, that, mm. that just, you know, but he had, he was having issues with, 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 with the studio. Mimic? Mimic. That's the one, Mimic. But even when you watch Hellboy, Hellboy is about a character that has to be hidden. <laughs> um, again, so... Uh, the Hellboy movies are great, fun movies. They're he knows how to have, movies. yeah, he knows how to have fun, and at the same time, he can scare an audience. If you haven't seen The Devil's Backbone, I highly urge you to do so. Um, you know, another beautiful movie uh, set in a very conflicted time, uh, and yeah, he's, he's just great. Pan's Labyrinth, you know, is another wow, one. And again, his his creatures and the way that. Uh, his imagination is wonderful. Uh, it was about a year ago that he had a thing at LACMA over here. And uh, it was just a beautiful display. You know, his house, in his house, as, as a horror fan. He has a museum. <laughs> he, well, he, not only does he have a museum, he has a room that is modeled after one of the rooms in the of the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. And he is actually, it's rumored that he's supposed to be directing a Haunted Mansion movie... Which I'm like, get on with it already. Um, but that's how much he loves this. You know, that's how much he loves the genre. And uh, it's it's seen in pretty much every movie that he's directed. Absolutely. So. All right. Uh, well, I agree with you guys overall. Uh, as I said, I appreciate this movie. And uh, I think he's going to be kept very busy during award season. Uh, as well, a lot of the cast and, and, and everyone else. And uh, that's great to hear. Um, because I think they absolutely deserve it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we'll see. You know, we, we're not done yet. Obviously, in terms of anatomy, we're going to get through all of our Oscar nominees as those come out. But anyway, I'm glad we have got to talk about this movie. As always, thank you guys for joining us. We truly appreciate you. Um, we're going to be coming to a close for 2017. We're going to be wrapping things out next week officially with, of course... Of course, father figures. Just kidding. <laughs> no, of course, Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Come on, people. Oh, we have can't, to. Can't take me seriously. That's how we closed out last year, was it not? Or two years ago? Rogue. When, no, was, when we did, um, we did Force Awakens. Yeah, Force Awakens. Two years ago. And I literally had to get on an X-wing and fly away during, during that <laughs> that's show. That's right. That's right. You, you did. Go. Well. We have lots to look forward to, but um, obviously two completely different movies. Please let us know what you guys think of this movie in the comment section below. We have done other Guillermo del Toro movies, whether Crimson Peak, as Marissa mentioned, whether find it in the archives. It's there. Pacific Rim is there. Mm-hmm. It's our very, very, very first, first yeah. anatomy of a movie. That's right. We, uh, we bring it back, don't <laughs> we? Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, follow at... Uh, the Popcorn Talk at Movie Anatomy and of course D-Movies 1701 that's for Dimitri and at Serafini TV for Marissa Uh, thank you guys as always I'm at Phil Svitek we'll see you next time bye bye folks I speak your name
from producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network.